Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that often tackles difficult and uncomfortable topics because that's the world we live in. And we are dealing with a very uncomfortable topic today. And I will tell you right up, it just gives me the willies every time I hear of a story like this. The story that I'm referring to is one of child sexual abuse, which is bad enough, but then that abuse being supported by the court system. I have with me Suzanne Lashaw, and she is a grandmother of a young man uh, and a daughter who are going through this, a child and, and her daughter who are going through this situation. I also have with me Barry Goldstein, who's been on our show before. He is an expert and an advocate in these kinds of cases. Welcome, Barry. I'm glad to be here. I always uh, enjoy speaking with you, Heather. Okay. This topic... Uh, there, there's no, there's no way we can discuss what's happening here and make it fun and entertaining. It's going to be a tough topic for all of us, and it needs to be told. However, Suzanne, start us out. What is the background for this situation with your grandson? Um, the background for this is that. Um, I was present for my grandson's birth and present for the first two months of his life helping to care for him. Um, and at that time, his father showed no interest in participating in that care. Once my grandson was walking and talking, his father then started court proceedings against my daughter to um, have overnights with my grandson, who was then one and a half and still breastfeeding. Eventually, the courts gave him overnights, despite the fact that he was still breastfeeding. And after that, he started demonstrating sexualized behavior. When he was around two and a half, he started talking about how his father was doing this penis-to-penis thing with him. And um, reports were made um, to CPS in New York State Um, And they investigated more than once and kept saying that the investigation was unfounded. Unfounded in CPS terms means that the child did not disclose to them. He was very young. He he didn't want to talk about it to anyone except his mom. And occasionally he would talk to me about it. Um, As he grew older, he started disclosing to other people eventually disclosed to CPS, and they said that at that point that he was being coached by his mom. Meantime, we've been in court with the father um, persecuting my daughter for five years, um, and the court telling her that she, if she continued to uh, ask CPS to investigate or ask other people to investigate why her son was talking about these things, that she would lose him. Um, That took us through uh, last year when the court was um, pushing for her to give up custody of my grandson and turn him over to his abuser. At that point, she felt like she had no other choice other than to flee the country and go to a country where she hoped they would protect him from this ongoing sexual abuse. Um, So she went to Costa Rica. She went to Costa Rica um, in just a little, uh, about a year ago. Um, They were there for eight months, and at the end of eight months were given temporary refugee status status by the country of Costa Rica. Just after that happened, 
um, this man showed up, and it turned out that he was had been filing papers in family court there since August of last year, that he had known all along where they were, was uh, filing papers uh, and spreading misinformation about my daughter, um, including circulating public published posters and media saying that she was crazy and that she would murder her son if she was not apprehended. Um, He told these factitious things to Interpol and the FBI as well. None of it was true, but they were apprehended. My grandson has been in custody of an organization within Costa Rica called PANI, which is the equivalent of kind of the equivalent of our child protective services since um, March and has not been allowed to see his mother, but he has been allowed to see his father and has consistently said to the psychologist and the people working with him in Costa Rica that his father has sexually abused him. Um, Somehow the judge in the family court there was corrupted by this man and rule to send him send my grandson back with his abuser that was appealed went before a tribunal in which the corrupt judge in the family court followed up the chain into the tribunal and the tribunal again ruled to send him back now it is under review of what's called the sala corta there which is their uh, entity like our supreme court last week Pani, the government organization that has been holding Arden, um, issued a statement and submitted it to the court, reversing a previous decision that they thought he should be sent back. They're now saying that he should not be sent back to the U.S., that it's dangerous for him, and that they are certain that he has been sexually abused by his father. We're waiting for a decision from this court which will either come out tomorrow or Friday. Um, They'll either rule to allow my daughter and my grandson to stay in Costa Rica and be protected, or they will rule to send my grandson back to the United States with his abuser, which means my daughter will then be extradited as well and put in jail. Right. For taking the child against court orders? Um, There... She took the child at the time she she fled with my grandson. She was the primary caregiver for him and had been all of his life. Um, there were mm-hmm. no court orders. She, she all she did was she did not show up to uh, comply with a visitation order. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Suzanne. I know that's a very painful story for you to relate, Barry. I have so many questions. One is, first of all, do you want to add anything to what Suzanne shared with us about her son or her grandson's uh, situation? I think the first thing we need to talk about is the context that this case took place in. You know, we have a broken system in the United States in general, which is why according to the ACE research, ACE being Adverse Childhood Experiences, which is research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the United States, we are allowing one quarter of our children to be sexually abused. I don't know of any statistic that is more outrageous than that. And it's not an accident. You know, I don't want to say it's deliberate, but it's, you know, we use so many flawed practices and so many people that should know better believe the myth that women and children frequently make false reports. And so children are not protected. And because children are not protected, it means that abusers are encouraged to commit their crimes. So we have a problem nationwide, you know, and one of the big parts of the problem is that instead of child sexual abuse being 
primarily a criminal matter that is investigated by law enforcement, most of the cases are investigated by a social worker, and the purpose is reunification rather than protection of the child. The family courts are even worse. Um, although less than 2% of reports of child sexual abuse, reports made by mothers, are deliberately false, in 85% of the cases, the alleged abuser is given custody, which means that in most of these cases, the courts are sending the children to rapists and abusers. Um, there is about to come out very major research, um, which I know you've reported on, the Meyer study. And I think when we last talked about it, there was a preliminary finding. Now they have the final version, and they're waiting for it to be approved and released. But again, it shows that um, almost none of the child sexual abuse reports are being believed. So this comes in a really horrific setting so that everything was stacked against the mother and the child. I think one thing that is really important for your listeners to hear is that um, when the boy was about three, the mother had to go to an appointment related to the court, and she left her son with his best friend, and of course the best friend's mother was there. And during the time that they were playing with each other, um, the child took the, his best friend into the bedroom, convinced him to take his clothes off, and by the time the mother found them, um, the boy's penis was sore from trying to push it uh, into his best friend's bottom, and he had peed all over um, his best friend's back. Um, the child also um, tried sexual play with other children, um, you know, playmates, so much so that his teacher had to keep him near her, you know, in order to protect the other children. And I understand that um, other children in the area were sometimes abused by children that he had abused. So this is the, you know, kind of event that could never happen, could not be coached, could not happen unless the child was in fact sexually abused. And the evaluator who claimed to be an expert in child sexual abuse dismissed this extreme abusive behavior as the children playing doctor. One of the questions that I had, Barry, is about these evaluators. I mean, this is not the first show we've done talking about this issue. It's certainly not the first, the first case that we've heard of about this particular issue. I have personal feelings about this because I made it my business about two years ago. I live in a very, very good county in Washington State that tends to understand domestic violence, that tends to understand these kinds of issues. I went to the Guardian Ad Litem training over three days, um, carried out in, in my county, King County, Washington. And I was astounded at the way they handled domestic violence. I think there were two speakers during the training on domestic violence issues. One was pretty good. The other one, not so good. But then the overarching attitude of that group and of the group of presenters was, well, 
you have two parents there, you have to assume that they're equally good, they are equally capable of being a parent and having the full custody. You have to assume that they're, they're just absolutely on a level. Well, that sounds pretty good until you realize that most custody evaluations that go to court, something like 85% of them, they're not equal parents. One of those parents, usually the male, has documented domestic violence in their background. So I was gobsmacked by realizing that basically guardians ad litem, and I'm assuming judges, courts, etc., are assuming that the people that they see in custody disputes are all just ordinary, everyday people who happen to have a difference of opinion. And they're not. The custody cases that go to court are overwhelmingly, well, they like to use the word high conflict. I like to use the term domestic violence or abusive people. When you make the assumption that people are equal, that parents are equal, that the skills and and the qualities that they have are equal, and yet one side is criminal and the other side is not, that's faulty thinking. And I have to believe that that's the kind of thinking that leads to these kinds of decisions. Because what I've seen is that usually when, there's, when a mother reports something to the courts, the court's go-to position is to not believe her, to think she's just being vindictive and making it up. Correct me if I'm wrong, Barry. Well, then there'll be silence for the rest of your program. Um, you know, everything you said is right. And again, we should put it in context. You know, because we're going to spend a lot of time, you know, criticizing the courts, and deservedly so. But the fact is they handle most cases fine because most Mm -hmm. cases involve two good, loving parents that would never deliberately hurt their children. And when you have two good parents, two safe parents, you know, whatever you decide, it's, it's not going to be a tragedy. The problem in the courts is about 3.8% of all cases that usually require trial and often much more. And you're right, they're called high conflict by the courts. That's the uh, mistraining that they get. The reality is that a very large majority of these cases are really domestic violence cases. These are cases in which the worst abusers seek custody as a way to regain what they believe is their right to control their victim or to punish her for leaving. And the courts don't understand it. These are the cases where people die. These are the cases where children's lives are ruined. And the courts are using the same practices for these extreme dangerous issues that they do for cases involving two good parents. And there is a huge bias and prejudice that um, both parents are good parents, as you said. And, you know, they are told that children need both parents in their lives. And the problem is that when one of the parents is abusive, they cause more harm than good. I mean, it's true that if a child loses a parent, that's harmful. But if the child has to interact with an abusive parent, that's far more harmful. And the problem is that the courts are not using specialized evaluators and GALs in these abuse cases. Um, The Saunders study from the U.S. Justice Department says that courts should use a multidisciplinary approach. And that means in a DV case, you get someone with expertise in domestic violence. And in a child sexual abuse case like this, you get a child sexual abuse expert. The court in this case, as in most others, were using professionals who are experts in mental illness and psychology, but not 
domestic violence or child sexual abuse, so they didn't know what to look for, they didn't know how to recognize it, and one of the things Saunders found is that professionals who do not have the specific knowledge that they need tend to focus on the myth that women frequently make false reports, and it is that myth that really was the overarching reason that the court never gave a fair hearing, never you know looked to investigate what actually happened, didn't use the incident I talked about, you know, to understand what was really going on. You know, they automatically want to believe that child sexual abuse is wrong. And and just in fairness to the court, the other part of the problem is that attorneys almost routinely refuse to present child sexual abuse cases, sometimes domestic violence cases, and the mother in this case had an attorney who did not advocate for her, did not know how to handle an abuse case, um, and you know, yet continued on, you know, even though he wasn't qualified. The problem that you brought up, Barry, uh, with the evaluators, um, I don't think the evaluators, well, I don't know. The evaluators that we're talking about are called everything from psychologists to psychiatrists to CPS workers to um, guardians ad litem. All of these people can be seen as experts by the court. Each one of them can have a differing opinion. In divorces or conflict cases where there's enough money involved, you can have both sides will have their experts that will testify and, and swear, you know, until they turn purple, that their opinion is absolutely mm-hmm. accurate and based on absolute fact and evaluation. But I question, and you know, Barry, that I'm I'm finishing up a PhD in psychology. So I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. I have had not one single course either in, well, in in a Ph.D. program dealing with evaluating domestic violence in custody cases. Not one single course. And I've been working on this thing since Job was a baby. I don't think that the people who are evaluators are necessarily trained or understand what's going on. And if those people are then going before a judge who doesn't know what's going on and doesn't understand, then how can we possibly expect different outcomes from what we're seeing with this little boy? So exactly, what what do we do about that? We talked a little bit about Ace and Saunders. This is vital research. You cannot handle an abuse case in a custody case without that research. And if you try to do it, you're going to hurt children. And that's standard. It's not that courts never use ACE or Saunders, but it's pretty unusual. So that means they're going to routinely get it wrong. The other part that we haven't talked about yet is the cottage industry of lawyers and evaluators that make large sums of money by promoting approaches that favor abusive fathers. And the reason that that works is what we said a few minutes ago, that um, most of these cases, the um, contested cases, are domestic violence cases. And domestic violence is about control, including financial control. So... If you want to make a lot of money, you need to favor the wealthier parent, which is going to be the abusive father. And so you have all these biased professionals who are part of the cottage industry. And if you think about lawyers and judges, they've spent their entire career hearing misinformation from biased professionals and from inadequately trained professionals. So the whole system is broken, and we've really reached a point, you know, just recently, particularly 
now that the Meyer research is available, it really closes the circle and confirms beyond any question that the system as it is now cannot handle abuse cases. And when they try, they destroy children's lives as, you know, the child in this case is at risk for, and his life certainly would have been destroyed if the mother had not run. I think that what we're talking about now, um, and well, let me reiterate, we've had, uh, we've been very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Vincent Folletia on the show. He's the one who worked for 30 years to come up with the ACEs study, which basically says kids are really, really severely hurt throughout their lives by these traumas that they go through. Dr. Uh, Joan Myers has been on the show talking about her research, uh, which basically is was the first really comprehensive nationwide research that shows how often these abusive and damaging fathers do get custody. Dr. D- uh, Daniel Sa- Saunders, uh, who started a, a study, um, I've spoken with him several times. He's been reluctant to come on the show. Um, but uh, he, those are the three basics that we're talking about here. And even if you are not into research, even if it's not something that you care to do, please at least Google the ACEs study, uh, Dr. David, Dr. Daniel Saunders, and Dr. Joan Myers, M-I-E-R, how did she spell her name? M-I-E-R. Yeah, I can't remember. It's it's not spelled with a Y. I know that. Um, but those three are crucial. And the other experts that we did not talk about are the lawyers. I see so many lawyers who really do so much more harm than good in these kinds of cases simply because they don't get it. Have you, I don't know much about law schools, but, you know, your, your background is law. Do they even cover these kinds of things in law school? Not is there at all. Is there any requirement that a lawyer understand this? I mean, you can go to law school and never even do family law, but you will never get anything about domestic violence or child sexual abuse. And, and you know, the crazy so, thing is, you know, lots of lawyers will do cases about technical things, you know, like medical malpractice, and they take the time and and learn about it so that they they are almost like experts when they present cases like that. But domestic violence, which, you know, they deal with in their practice so many times, it's not viewed as a specialized area of knowledge. And so... You know, with few exceptions, attorneys do not, you know, learn about it, don't think of it as a specialty, and so they never take the time to learn how to represent uh, clients who are victims of domestic violence. It's such a comprehensive problem. Um, The only encouraging thing that I know of is this has been going on for 30 years. At least now we're starting to see studies. We're starting to see conversations about it, and that's a good thing. Suzanne, I don't mean to keep ignoring you. We're going to get back to you here, um, but I wanted to lay the groundwork for what's going on. In the conversation that we've just had with Barry, Suzanne, do you concur? Is that what you saw in your grandson's case? Uh, Much of it. What I'll say is maybe different about our case is that many of the um, domestic violence Uh, cases that come up in family court, there is actually recorded complaints or, uh, you know, previous previous actions against the abusive parent. And even in those cases, the abuser is often awarded joint custody or full custody. In our case, there is nothing on record, no complaints against the against this man no in you know no other investigations on record and so the court interprets that as that he must be innocent i it just boggles my mind that courts would think that a pedophile or a a violent person would stand up and say oh yes i'm guilty they don't do that (laughs) and this person is wealthy and so he has hid his pedophilia very, very well. I, 
I, I, you know, I don't believe that my grandson is his only victim. I don't think well, pedophiles have one victim. Yeah. What you're saying is certainly consistent with what we know about pedophiles. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, they they don't typically until they're very old stop abusing. I mean that that's the typical scenario for that. Um, and certainly what you're saying about having wealth, wealth goes a long way not only in buying the experts and in buying the attorneys and in being able to pursue legal action, but also in covering up your sins. Um, it's yes, certainly and not also unusual. Right, and also what I've found in my case, and I'm guessing. It's, it has happened for other people as well, is the wealth buys the ability to use the judicial system to further abuse the victims. Mm-hmm. And certainly we've seen that a lot. You know, I mean, that's not a unique situation in your case. Um, you right. know, I mean, <laughs> there have been studies on using the court system to further abuse because abusers do that. That's what they do. Abusers abuse. And they will use any methodology that they can get their hands on or access in order to do that. So, um, Barry, you wrote an article, uh, a, a very good one, called The Lies of the Fathers, uh, right, the Fathers' Rights Groups. Do right. you think talking a little bit about that will help enlighten why, the, why Suzanne's grandson's father is having so much power in this situation? Well, I think that's, you know, Part of it, the um, the what they call themselves fathers' rights groups. I would refer to them as abuser rights because overwhelmingly that's what they are, um, and they have had an extreme influence over the courts. You know, one of the most obvious findings in the Meyer research is that the out the outsized influence of alienation theories. And, you know, think about this for a second. Parental alienation syndrome, which was the original theory and everything else comes from that, was developed not based on any research, but based on um, the personal beliefs and biases of Richard Gardner, which included many public statements to the effect that sex between adults and children can be acceptable. The ACE study that we talked about is scientific research, peer-reviewed, comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Saunders study, again, peer-reviewed, scientific research, comes from the National Institute of Justice, two highly credible organizations. And yet, this you know unsupported theory that um, is based on the belief that sex between adults and children is acceptable has more influence over the courts than the two good scientific research studies. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong there. You 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 can't make that up. You can't believe that that could happen. And that that is what's going on. Yeah. Well, and you use uh, Joan uh, Meyer's statistics, I believe it was her statistic, that custody courts, 94% of the time, when they're told of child abuse, they disregard it. They say it, they don't believe it. 94% of the time. I mean, it doesn't take a deep thinker to maybe think that perhaps there's more child abuse that's legitimately claimed than 6% of the time um, because there's a great risk in, in saying that to a court. Um, so there seems to be in the courts, there seems to be an environment is it where we don't believe women, we don't believe that this is going on, we believe that all men and women are created equal when it comes to these kinds of contested divorces and child custody issues. How naive is that? And where did that come from? Is it a fault of education? Is it a fault? Uh, I mean, is it, is it uh, pa- the patriarchy? What, why? Why are we seeing this in our courts? 
in light of you know evidence after evidence after evidence because Suzanne your your daughter is not the first one to seek asylum in other countries for this kind of situation and other countries have granted asylum um, there's time after time after time I've I've spoken with women or or children who are now adults who were taken to other countries and granted asylum because of this exact same thing why do our courts not recognize this. Barry, is it is it patriarchy? You know, part of the problem is it would be really nice to offer you a simple answer. And the problem is that it's complicated. There's a lot of reasons, certainly, patriarchy is part of it. I think what part of it is important is the history, that when domestic violence was first became a public issue in the 1970s, we had no research. And popular assumptions, and in fairness, in good faith, assumed that domestic violence was caused by mental illness, by substance abuse, by the actions of the victim. And so the courts developed practices based on those assumptions that turned out to be wrong, and that's one of the reasons they turned to mental health professionals. And, you know, the assumption was that a mental health professional would see if the alleged abuser had a mental illness. If not, they assumed, you know, he couldn't be an abuser. They wanted to see how the child was doing. They assumed that the child would act out in very obvious ways. And children use a variety of defense mechanisms, so that's not always true. Um, and so, you know, you started out, you know, with the courts turning to and re- and relying and really over-relying on mental health professionals who know nothing about domestic violence and child sexual abuse. So that, that was a really bad start. Um, all this time later, you know, we have the research, but because they didn't have research at the start, they never got into the practice of turning to the research to correct their errors and to update their practices. And then you have the cottage industry that, you know, promotes everything to favor abusive fathers, um, and so that makes things worse. And um, it continues to this day. But it's been 40 years, at least 40 years. Um, that yep. we've been having research into this area. Why are the courts so slow? Maybe you can't answer that. That's a rhetorical question, I guess, Barry. Oh, no, um, but I, I think we do have something here. You know, we have inertia, and you know, we they are really defensive. You know, obviously courts get um, criticized, and they have act, reacted in a really defensive way. And one of the pieces of research we haven't talked about is the Bartlow study, which looked at, um, at that time, 175 child murders. And she interviewed judges and uh, court administrators in communities where a child was murdered, usually after the court gave the abuser the access he needed to kill the child. And Dr. Bartlow asked, what have you done in response to this tragedy to try to better protect children? Which seems like the most obvious question. I mean, if they don't do something different after a child is murdered, then they're never going to do it. And the answer was nothing, because they all assumed that the tragedy in their local community was an exception. And it wasn't. And we now know there have been 650 children murdered in the last 10 years, and the courts are doing nothing. You know, and it's part of it is the defensiveness. Part of it is not looking for research. Part of it is, you know, relying on the same very small group of evaluators, you know, and so they're not getting new people who are familiar with the research. And they're all comfortable in this system, and they are really punitive to anyone like Suzanne's daughter who, you know, challenges them, and they want to silence them, and they want to 
punish them, and they don't want to consider that they made a tragic mistake. I think that's a good point, and I've seen that personally. Um, there can be two litigants, and they can be you know, doing things back and forth, blah, 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 and the judges will remain pretty aloof. But boy, if one of those litigants does something that offends the judge or challenges the court order, that's, that's when they start to get upset. Um, I've, I've seen that personally. And it, it, it kind of astounds me. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but it also kind of astounds me that they can remain so separate from it. Another issue, and uh, I'm sure you know Richard Dakota, who is, by the way, running for state Supreme Court in Louisiana, and he's done very much uh, an attorney with uh, a very extensive background in domestic violence cases. He, he contends that the difference uh, with the um, custody cases is that family courts are not based on this. They don't operate the same way as criminal courts, that criminal courts are based on facts and evidence whereas family courts are based on a motive to reunite the family. And therefore, all of these decisions are made, and I believe you mentioned that earlier in our conversation, that the motive is not to prevent a crime or to keep someone safe. I mean, they might have that somewhere there, but the primary, you know, what, what did they used to say in Star Trek, the prime directive is to reunite the family. And we had all of this supposed research on how crucial it is for children to have fathers involved. Um, for some reason, they didn't mention that they had to be decent, sane, and reasonable fathers, uh, or mothers for that matter. They, they interpreted that to be any, any father needs to be crucial to the, is, is crucial to the child's development, which I, I think is flawed thinking. But do you see that, the, the difference, be, what uh, Richard Ducote pointed out, the difference between the family courts that are making these custody decisions and regular courts? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think the family courts are the worst in terms of handling abuse issues. Well, yeah. what you said then, for me answers the question that I've been asking um, frequently, which is, how the court, how the family courts can accept statements made by someone without any evidence to back it up. And so this kind of clarifies that they're not even looking for evidence. They're just going to listen to whoever they feel like listening to or whoever has the most money or whoever takes up the most time first because then they're tired of listening so they don't want to listen to the other side. Um, mm -hmm. that, his, that person's statement kind of clarifies that for me about why no evidence is required to back up accusations in family court. You know, one of the things I noticed when I first saw the pilot study from Joan Meyer is that there is, you know, expert witnesses are allowed to give opinions, but there's a big difference in the value of subjective opinions and objective opinions. Subject opinions are just you say whatever you want and whatever you believe, whereas objective opinions would be based on good research. And the courts seem not to make a, different, a differentiation between subjective opinions and objective opinions. And so when they get the usual suspects of evaluators who just you know use the same flawed practices? Um, they just give an opinion. Well, I think we should do that. And one of the things that you never, you almost never see is here's the benefits of this potential decision. Here's the negatives. So, for instance, they they're never weighing what's the harm to children of separating them from their primary attachment figure. They're never weighing what is the risk of exposing children to adverse childhood experiences or of making sure that the child won't get the treatment that's needed to overcome ACEs. You, you, you don't have that weighing of good and bad. They're just saying, well, I think this is a good idea, and you know they don't have to justify it. 
No, they don't. They don't because, I mean, you have to have a lot of money to appeal a court decision. I would I would be willing to bet that an awfully large number of people who go through these situations and these custody problems do not have the resources to appeal a decision at an appellate court. And even if you can appeal it, it has to be for certain things, not necessarily the decision itself. Um, so there's very little higher authority when a judge makes a decision. And now maybe that's a sweeping generalization, Barry, but that's how I see it. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, like, We've talked before about the Safe Child Act, and one of the fundamental things we do is say that the health and safety of children must be the first priority, because right now there are usually a dozen or more factors that courts are required to weigh, but the judge has total discretion about which factors to weigh, so they can decide that living in a nice home is more important than, you know, domestic violence or child abuse. And the appellate court won't touch it because the judge focused on one of the factors. And most of those factors make sense if you're dealing with two safe parents, but not when one of the parents is dangerous. You know, I don't know if I've told you this, Mary. Probably I have because it's so embedded in my memory. Uh, several years ago on this show, I wanted to have a family court judge on to to talk and interview. And I called all around the country to different contacts and was given the name of a woman judge in Denver. I called that she was a person who knew a lot about domestic violence. She was very well informed. And so I called her and she graciously agreed to be interviewed for the show. I asked her, I believe it was off the air, I asked her, Please tell me what goes through a family court judge as he or she stands there listening to the story and making the decision about custody for a child when one of the litigants has a documented history of domestic violence. How can custody then be given to that person? Her response demonstrated to me that there was absolutely no understanding of domestic violence because her response to me was, well, you have to understand there are two people in front of you. One is frantic and out of control and doesn't know what's up and and very upset. And then another one is in control and in charge and he's got his life together. So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give the custody to the, the father who's got it together. As a person who knows domestic violence, excuse me, how on earth would you expect that mother to behave when she's leaving a person who she knows will do anything to get his own way, to win, somebody who probably has more money and power than she has, and somebody who's trying to take away her children? You really expect that person to be in charge and confident? And that perception negates documented domestic violence in the other person's history. I was just shocked with that. And as I said, it was several years ago, but that has just stuck with me because I thought if that is what's going on, if that is the thinking, then we're all screwed. Well, you, you know, in the Saunders study, they refer to research led by Jennifer Hardesty in which they found that courts place much too much emphasis on mother's anger and emotion all out of proportion mm-hmm. to what it says about her parenting. And, you know, and, and think about it. It's part of the stereotype of an angry or scorned woman. And, you know, there's a lot of gender bias. And, you know, the Meyer study confirms that, you know, all the prior studies that showed widespread gender bias we haven't done anything to correct that. And, you know, most gender bias is not intentional. Um, And so they continue to do it without realizing it. And it's not safe for attorneys or litigants to say, hey, you know, that's gender bias. No. Suzanne, 
I'm assuming that all of the things we've talked about you have seen in your daughter's case. Uh, yes, many of them. Okay. It also um, sounds like maybe there's some hope on the horizon for your daughter and your grandson. Do you do you feel that way? And do you feel that you would have seen that hope had your daughter been a, been still in the United States? Oh, I'm reticent to say that there's hope. Uh, we are certainly, many, many people are praying hard that the judges that hold the fate of my family in their hands make a, a just decision and listen to the the reports that they've been given. But there is no guarantee, not even in this other country, that that will happen. Um, however, we never got this far in the United States. So okay. there's that piece. You know, no one, no one in a, quote, professional status was listening to my grandson or believing my grandson. And even, even less were they listening or believing my daughter or any of the other people that my grandson eventually disclosed to. I kind of feel as though this has a more global view to it in that it's very unpleasant and very painful to think of that adults are using and abusing children in this way. And I think it's something that I see touched upon in reports and media, but I don't see that it's ever a sustained focus. And I think maybe one of the reasons is for our culture, it's such an unpleasant topic. Yeah. Well, we see that even just talking about domestic violence. I mean, people don't right. want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it, let alone child sexual assault. Uh, you know, I mean, people people don't want to hear this. Um, they somehow or other think that if they don't hear about it, it doesn't exist, I guess. Or maybe they think if they don't hear about it, then they're safe. It'll never happen to them. I don't know. Um, but it's it's clearly an issue. It's clearly an issue in many countries, not just ours, but it seems like, you know, this, this is the country we're in, and so this is the one we're talking about. Um, right. I hope that the Costa Rican government uh, and judicial system um, saves your grandson. And I also can't imagine the staggering repair work, even if there's a great outcome here as far as the custody your daughter, your grandson, you are facing a staggering future of trying to repair the damage that's been done to this little boy. Yes, it's, it's done to our whole family. That even if the Costa Rican government makes the right decision here, that doesn't mean that your daughter can ever come back here. Exactly. She had to walk away from everything. Yeah. And... uh and this man and his attorneys from the U.S. and even the judge and the forensic psychologist that he's paid to issue statements since they've been gone all feel as though this, they act as though this was an easy thing for her to pick up and walk away from her entire life, from her family, from everything she knew, to go to someplace strange and try and get help. That is not an easy thing for anybody to do. Yeah. Barry, how can people help? If people are listening to this, this program, how can they help? I believe there's a petition. Yes, um, we have a petition with, last I checked, about 1,350 signatures, and we're also trying to get emails sent to the ambassador to, uh, from Costa Rica. Um, if you go to the... Um, Stop Abuse Campaign website, or if you go to um, any of my Facebook pages, you will find the articles and the links, um, and we're still trying to get more um, signatures and uh, emails, um, and so hopefully we can save this boy, and then hopefully we can change the system so that um, no one else should ever go through this again. It's one child at a time. It's a never-ending battle. 
just one child at a time. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, for those of you who work in the field, um, for, for somebody like me who reports this often, you know, it, it's just overwhelming sometimes how often, how frequently this is happening. You know, you talk to different people about what can we do, and you hear education, and you hear that. I don't know. I don't know if education is enough. I, I, I just don't know because, I don't know, maybe I'm feeling pessimistic, Barry, but this is, this is a battle we have to win because children are at stake. Children are at stake. And it seems to me that when judges treat children like grandma's end table when it comes to custody, that can never be good for anybody, let alone these kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard many. I've heard many judges say that if the legislature didn't like what they were doing, they would tell them so, and so they take the lack of action as justifying all the atrocities they're committing. And the solution is the Safe Child Act. That's what would have saved this child in the United States, and will save, you know thousands of other children. So, you know, it's important. There is a solution. We know how to change this. We need the Safe Child Act. And people can learn about that on the Stop Abuse, at the StopAbuseCampaign.org website? Yes. Okay. And basically the Safe Child Act says stop treating children like that end table that belong to grandma and start looking at the safety of that child before you look at the property owners of that child. And and that makes perfect sense to me. And for those people who have not been exposed to child custody conflict and court decisions, you would think that would be the very first thing. You would think that that's how it's operating now, but it's not. It's not at all. Safety, long-term psychological health of children, it's just not coming in. I, 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 one of the most egregious things that I heard was, uh, I, you know, a young woman was talking to me over in eastern Washington. She was 18 years old, had just given birth to a child two months before, and her boyfriend and his parents wanted custody of this baby, and so they were fighting for custody, and the judge, in his imminent wisdom, decided that, well, easy squeezy, we'll give this two-month-old infant one week with dad and one week with mom. That shows no understanding of any kind of bonding or child development or even breastfeeding. And yet that's the decision this judge made, thinking that everything was just going to be fine that way. And I see that over and over. I I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss for words. Barry, help me wrap this up. What can, you know, what can people do besides going to the website, going to the Facebook page, learning as much as they can? What can we do about this situation? We need to go to our legislators, ask them to introduce the Safe Child Act, work with the Stop Abuse Campaign. You know, we have some states that are further along than others. We don't have it passed in any state, but if we can get a couple of states to pass the Safe Child Act, it will be so successful. It will show that we can do better, and I think it will quickly you know, be passed everywhere else. But we need to stop. So if any of your listeners you know, know their assembly person or their state senator, you know, we need the bill to be introduced, and let's work together and get it passed. You give me a good idea, Barry, because I was just at an organizational meeting of uh, a women's group last week, and they were talking about what emphasis did they want to have with our state legislature this year, and guess what? I'm going to go back and tell them. (laughs) So thank you for that. Suzanne, all the luck in the world to you. Our fingers are crossed. I'm going to go sign that petition right now, and uh, we'll just pray that everything works out. Uh, for your daughter and for your grandson. Thank you so much for sharing what has to be a painful story. Barry, thank you for providing background and your knowledge and sharing it with our audience. And thank you for the work you do with the Stop Abuse Campaign. You know, we have to keep working on this issue. We have to keep on top of it and make sure that our children are safe in the future. So thank you, Barry. Thank you, Suzanne. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.